Thank you for listening to this podcast from The Resting Place Tampa. We hope you feel honored, empowered, and full of faith because of what you hear. And we would love to see you at a gathering soon. For more resources like this, head to trpfamily.org. Well, it is a joy to be here and uh, had an incredible time yesterday. I had a lot of fun doing what we did yesterday. And I have a lot of fun doing what I'm doing now. And I really believe in what God has raised up, uh, Pastor Caleb, well, he's not a pastor, but Caleb, who's an apostolic leader, I really believe in what he's doing. So I get behind visionaries, not vision, because if the visionary is walking with God, then the vision will go forth. And so I'm just delighted I could pour into him, and I'm excited over the atmosphere, the organization, spirit of excellence all the leaders being developed, the campuses, the missional aspect. So it really has uh, a church that's operating on all the cylinders. I'm really excited about that. And then the convening power, bringing all these leaders together yesterday, meeting significant leaders in the marketplace and church space. So uh, thank you for hosting us for this AI uh, summit and for having me today. So thank you. All right. So today, what I want to do is talk about going back to Eden, going back to Eden. So what I've discovered many years ago is the importance of knowing all of the scripture, not just little parts, and a lot of uh, pastors or uh, Christians, I should say, just have certain parts of the Bible underlined, and that's the totality of their Christianity, which leaves them open to losing their faith or what people call deconstruction, because they know passages on healing or salvation, baptism in the Holy Ghost, prosperity, and that's about the extent of their walk, or maybe they go through devotionals where they go through um, the Bible once a year or things like our daily bread. But I really believe God has called us to be saturated with Scripture because there's 66 books of the Bible, and every single book talks to each other. So you can't understand one passage without understanding how it's connected throughout the Bible. So if you don't understand patterns of Scripture and connecting points, it's going to be hard for you to get the fullness of the Bible. Now, as a new Christian, you can read the Bible. You must be born again. It'll minister to you. So even just reading the Bible in piecemeal is fantastic. It's better than nothing. But as disciples, God has called us to dive deeper into this so that we can really understand the fullness of the kingdom. And the more of the word that we have, the more like Jesus will be, because Jesus is the word of God. So Jesus isn't just some feeling or presence. It's the word. And to the extent of the word that we have, to that extent can the Holy Spirit move through us 
As Jesus said in John 14, the Spirit takes all things I've spoken and brings it to your remembrance. So if you don't know the Word, the Holy Spirit doesn't have a lot to work with. So the more the Word you know, the more important it'll be, uh, the more um, it'll be uh, effective in terms of the Holy Spirit operating in your life. So one of the examples of this will be how the kingdom of God points back to the Garden of Eden. Everything in the Bible is initially in the book of Genesis in seed form, especially the first 10 chapters. And so you could preach for the rest of your life just on Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 and understand how it's applied in the New Testament. So when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, basically what you'll find out was it was an announcement of returning the world back to the original paradise of God. And a lot of times the evangelical church just understands the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ in terms of what we call penal substitution, where he was our replacement for sin so we can go to heaven. So much deeper than that. So much deeper than that. Matter of fact, a lot of the church historians and fathers of the early centuries believed in what's called recapitulation theory, which meant that Jesus' life, not just death, burial, and resurrection, was lived out so that he can bring us back to the restoration of the garden. And the kingdom of God was the beginning of that process as Jesus was the last Adam. And so Jesus died not just to bring us to heaven and forgive our sins, but to reconcile the world back unto himself. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20, and Colossians 1, 20. And so the cross of Christ enables us to experience paradise now. That's why we have eternal life. You don't experience it when you go to heaven. It begins now. The Spirit is a foretaste of that inside of us. There's a story in the book of Exodus to give you an illustration of how the early church fathers looked at passages and connected them all together in Exodus 15 verse 22 to 25 and then verse 27 it's talking about Moses who made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur they went three days into the wilderness and found no water now every word in the Bible points to something else it's all vital so they found no water and when they came to Marah they couldn't drink the water of Marah because it was bitter Therefore, is named Mara. And the people grumbled, and they said, What shall we drink? And Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. It's another key thing. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. And so much of the preaching the last 100 years has lost what we would call metaphor. But theology is metaphor. You can't understand the scripture without symbols and signs and metaphor that points to something else. Picture has a thousand words. And so God oftentimes, he connects points together metaphorically as pictures so we could get 
an incredible experience that's more profound than what one language can depict. So it's an existential experience through symbols and signs and metaphor. So according to one of the greatest church fathers who lived in the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa, he looked at the story and he said this. This is the typical way they would look at scripture in the early centuries. He said, those who left the slavery of Egypt, well, those of them who left that behind went on a journey through the wilderness to find their ultimate rest in God fulfilled in Jesus. So they looked at the journey as depicting our life now in this world, right? And so the three days without water signified the death and burial of Christ when he was in the ground and there was no sustenance for those three days. The log they threw in the water that was bitter depicted the cross of Christ, the tree that turns the bitterness of sin into the sweetness of eternal life. Then they came to Elam, which was a place of palm trees and springs of water, which depicted an oasis of paradise in the middle of the wilderness, which we could experience now in this life through the cross. And then we see the 12 springs of water and the 70 palm trees. Even numbers mean something. They numerically correspond to the preaching of the gospel by the 12 apostles, then the 70 that Jesus sent out to proclaim the kingdom, Luke chapter 9 and 10. So all of this points together because they looked at the Bible, 66 books, one author, everything talks together, everything points together. So there was never a story that didn't depict something greater. First in the physical realm, but it also depicted something that was going to happen and something that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Um, and we could see every book of the Bible. I could give you many illustrations. I'm not doing that today. And so when we look at Genesis, we see that we start in a garden mountain temple. The Garden of Eden was on top of a hill. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 28, and it had to be on a hill because rivers, four rivers flowed down. And so it wasn't just a garden, it was on the, a summit. So we start in this garden mountain temple. Garden of Eden was similar to what we would call the most holy place. That was where God's presence was, but it was the holy place for the whole earth, not just for a tent. And so God originally created the whole world to be a sacred space. So we start off in a garden mountain temple, and we're going to end up in a temple mountain city. According to Revelation 21, these are called chiasms. They start off one place, and they end another place. The beginning, Genesis, points to the end, Revelation. Even in the middle of the book, Nehemiah rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem was a microcosm of the church being called to participate with Jesus in the renewal and restoration of the earth by the proclamation of the gospel. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, God spoke about cattle, sheep, and goats because the Jews were farmers. In the New Testament, the focus was on fish because in Scripture, fish stood for the nations of the world. And so it went from reaching one land and one ethnic people to now the whole earth, which is why Jesus said, if you follow me, 
I'll make you fishers of men. And you can see more about that in Ezekiel 47, where the water symbolically talked about reaching the world. Um, and water in the Bible also symbolically talks about nations. Jesus told us in the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3 and 4, Jesus told us to announce the kingdom. And essentially what he's saying is, I want to bring my rule back to the whole earth. I want to restore the whole earth as my temple. How many follow in this? This is why in Matthew 13, when Jesus talked about parables, it wasn't an accident that he likened the kingdom of God to someone sowing seed in the ground, depicting a garden where eventually what was harvested permeated throughout the whole earth. He used uh, yeast, he used different things, mustard seed, but it all had to do with something beginning small permeating the whole earth. Not an accident that he used the term seed. Ezekiel 36, when Ezekiel was prophesying about the new covenant, he said in verse 33, on that day when I cleanse you from all your sins, I'm going to cause cities to be inhabited, waste places to be rebuilt. He's talking about the kingdom now. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being the desolation that was in the sight of all that passed by, they will say, listen to this, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around will know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. So practically speaking, there are seven ways we can do this. And I'm going to move fast. I'm not sure how much I'm going to be able to finish today. How are we going to plant the garden of the Lord? How do we participate with Jesus in the renewal of all things? How do we bring the kingdom of God in this world through our own life, our church, and our families? Number one, seven ways be an image reflector of God. Genesis 1 tells us in chapter 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, that God made man in his own image, right? So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, in order to understand what any passage means, you have to look at the context. Someone say context. So the context of Genesis 1, 26, the image of God, because all these scholars, theologians debating, what does that mean? Well, just go back to Genesis 1-2, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the abyss, and God said, let there be light. The Spirit of God there is a manifestation of the triune glory spirit. It was the same spirit that hovered over Israel in the desert, in the wilderness. It's fire by night, cloud by day. The same language was actually used when God says in Deuteronomy 32, talking about the Jews walking in the wilderness. He said, in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled them. He cared for them 
as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall rest under the shadow of the Almighty. Same kind of language. And so the spirit that was hovering, it's the same Hebrew word that God used as an eagle fluttering over its young, watching the people, the children of Israel, walking in the wilderness. So we see that that's a manifestation of the glory spirit, the triune Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in the same context, without chapters and verses, because we put chapters and verses in there, he said, and God made man in his own image. So we were called initially to reflect that glory spirit. Both male and female. And so when Adam was created, he was created to be like God as God's vice reason, regent, representing heaven and earth for God. And when he failed, Jesus came as the last Adam to align heaven and earth again by being both fully human and fully God. So Adam was made in God's image, but the difference with Adam, uh, which was distinct from everything else, was that he was made of the dust of the ground, which gave him authority in the earth realm as a human, but God breathed in him the spirit, so he became a living soul that represented his connection to heaven and the invisible realm. So Adam was supposed to perfectly align heaven and earth in the garden and rule for God by doing that. And when he sinned, he lost that image, that glory of God, and Heaven and earth were no longer aligned, and everything in creation was inverted where man was made over the animal kingdom. Now the animal kingdom was over man because Satan came in the form of the serpent, and he submitted to an animal. And that's why people are ruled by their animal instincts. And that's why when you're born again, your spirit is made alive, and you're recreated back in the image of Christ. And so Jesus told us to pray for God's kingdom to come, or paradise, the return to paradise, God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. He came to realign the heaven and the earth that Adam messed up and lost. Number two, we're called to manage the sphere of influence we're assigned to. In the same way God subdued the abyss, it says the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, the word deep is a word abyss, and I'll tell you what that means more in a minute. In the same way, he subdued the abyss. The abyss in the Hebrew mindset, uh, it's water, it's the ocean. It stands for chaos. It stands for fluidity, instability. Uh, you can't predict it. That's why when you go out in the water, it's dangerous. If you don't know what you're doing, especially if you go out in the middle of the water, that's why everybody wears life jackets and you have life rafts and all that. You don't know what... You know, a storm could come and even topple a big cruise ship, right? We've seen that. So the Titanic, right? So um, it's in Scripture, water always stands for chaos. And in the Hebrew connection of that word abyss, it's the word tahom, which is a mythical dragon. And so 
connecting to Mesopotamian gods and all it is. I don't want to get into that. There's theological messaging in that word abyss. It's beyond what I could share today. The Spirit of God was subduing the chaos monster, i.e. the dragon. And so when God made Adam in his own image, Adam had to reflect the glory to God to keep the chaos monster in subduing and subduing him, to keep him in that state of being subdued. And, and so we see that in Psalm 115, verse 16, it says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Psalm 8 says basically the same thing. And so Adam, made in God's image, was called to subdue the chaos, which enabled God initially to say, let there be light and begin the creation process or the design of the earth because he kept that chaos monster in check. Whether it was real, a real dragon or not is not the point, but it was chaos. And the, the Spirit of God was able to do what he did because of the ability to subdue that, that initial um, abyss and that chaos. And so we're going to get more into that in a moment. Number three, another way we can plant the garden of the Lord and manifest the kingdom is to work the field we're assigned to. So our labor, you could be a pastor or a plumber, whatever you're called to be. Our labor should reflect the glory of God as we work with Jesus to renew the earth. So the first command Adam had was to work. Somebody say work. Work is holy. It's not unspiritual. Being a pastor is not the only form of work that glorifies God. And so God took Adam, put him in a garden, the garden of the Lord that God initially planted. And it says in verse 15 of Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So even before sin entered the world, there was work, which means in paradise, there's work. You're not just going to float around in clouds for eternity. In heaven, there's work. Everything you do here is in preparation for what you will be doing with Christ to rule over angels and over the universe. Work. And to the extent that you're faithful here, to that extent will you have an eternal assignment. So this is not just a dress rehearsal. This is preparation for what you're called to do for an eternity. And so Adam worked by cultivating the garden while in the midst of God's presence. He also had all the animals come in front of him and he classified and categorized them by implication. He classified everything, not just the animals, but the botanic kingdom and inanimate objects. So Adam became the first zoologist. He became the first botanist. He became the first scientist. He became the first taxonomist. He classified and categorized everything. And so he took God's creation and took it to another level of specificity and detail and organization as God's vice regent. So he brought further um, administration to the earth. 
And so we see that work is holy. Adam had a lot of work. How would you like all the animals of the world to come to you and you have to classify them? All Noah had to do is put them in a boat. But Adam had to study them. That could have taken years. We don't know how long that took. So work, science, using your brain, creativity, classification, categories. All this is spiritual. This was in paradise. This is holy. This is powerful. It's not just about getting slain in the spirit on Sunday morning. It's about using your gifts on Monday. This is just as holy. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own business. That's good. Stay off Facebook, get in his book. Mind your own business and work with your own hands as we instructed you. So he said, this is your goal in life. Be quiet, mind your own business, and work. We see Noah as the second Adam in Genesis 9, after the flood dissipated. He would be the second Adam because he was given the same command that the first Adam had in Genesis 1.28, when God told Adam to bear fruit, multiply, and subdue the earth and replenish it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 9, 1 and 2, basically the same command God said to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and replenish or fill the earth. And instead of saying subdue and have dominion, he said the fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the field, so bird of the sky. And so basically he was giving him the same commandment, even though he changed the words up a little bit. So what's the first thing Noah did? Well, guess what? He began to be a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. He was trying to go back to the garden. He was trying to replant the garden of the Lord to bring another paradise and or manifest the kingdom. But unfortunately, following the footsteps of the first Adam, he fell into sin by partaking of a fruit when he got drunk and was uncovered in front of his sons. You can read that in Genesis 9, verse 20. So he took of the fruit, he made grapes, they fermented, he got drunk in the same way Adam and Eve fell by partaking of a fruit in the garden. Noah fell by partaking of a fruit in the garden. And what happened after Adam and Eve sinned, it says they knew that they were naked. They were uncovered. Why? The glory of God left. Soon as Noah got drunk, he laid in his tent naked. He was uncovered. No accident. Patterns pointing to each other. Jesus, as the last Adam, initially won the victory in the spirit. Where? In a garden. The Garden of Eden. As the last Adam where the first Adam failed, the, sec the last Adam had to succeed. So he succeeded in a garden. Adam said, my will, not your will. Jesus said, my, your will, not my will, in the Garden of Eden. I'm sorry, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And like the first Adam, he was uncovered when he hung in shame for our sins on the cross. And... After rejecting the vinegar, the fruit of the tree, three days later, he resurrected where? In a garden 
Because even Mary Magdalene thought he was the gardener. Nothing an accident. John 20, verse 14 and 15. She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? She supposing him to be the gardener said, where have you kept him? So Jesus sowed his life back into the ground or the dust of the earth where Adam came from. Three days buried so that we could drink the fruit of his blood and eat the bread of his body, which we commemorate in Holy Communion. So his work resulted in us having drink and food, the manna that came from heaven. All of this Edenic imagery points to the fact the church is called to align heaven and earth together in their labors as it was in the paradise of God. So whatever you're called to do, plumber, architect, parent, you're called to plant the garden of the Lord Pray the Lord's Prayer over that thing that you're doing and called to do and align heaven and earth. Number four, marriage and family is an Edenic pattern. Let's go to Genesis 1.28. says, God made both male and female. Then he says, multiply. He said, bear fruit and multiply. That has to do with having children and children having children, which means that even before Adam had one child, God called Adam to think generationally. That's a whole nother message in my book, Walking Generational Blessing. He said, multiply before he had one kid. That's very interesting to me. But in Genesis 2, verse 10 to 25, it says, For Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and woman were both naked and not ashamed. So we see Paul talking about marriage in Ephesians 5, how covenant marriage proclaims the gospel. So that means there must be a connection to the first marriage, and we'll see that in a minute. He says, husbands, love your wives, Ephesians 5, 25 to 32. Love your wives as Christ loved the church, as Christ loved the church. you got to catch this. There's nothing that's an accident. And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. And then verse 32, it says, this mystery is profound. What? that he might, going back to verse 25, that he might present the church to himself. He gave himself up so that he might present the church. In another part, it's called the bride, to himself. This mystery is profound. Oh, he's saying here, Scripture is metaphor. It's parabolic. It's symbols, not just literal. It is literal, but it's also metaphorical. He says marriage, even the act of a physical, realistic, phenomenological, material event as a wedding and marriage is a mystery. Everything points back to his story. That's why. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. So even an unsaved marriage 
of male and female points to Christ. They're preaching the gospel and they don't even know it. So how does that point to the first marriage? Well, listen to this. The first Adam was put to sleep, which is symbolic death by God. And while he was asleep, God took from his side his bride. Jesus, as the last Adam, willingly surrendered his life for humanity. And while he slept, his side was pierced by the Roman soldier and out of his side emanated water and blood, which symbolized the birth of his bride. And after Jesus was risen from the dead, God presented the church to him, his bride. Goes right back to Genesis 2. Furthermore, the ecstatic physical union, when men and women become intimate, depicts the ecstatic spiritual union between man and God, which is typified and Holy Communion, which the church celebrates, is a common union with God. That's why it says when we have communion, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We also see how having children and training them is part of our role in the kingdom. Because as long as Adam was single, even though he was an uberman, as the philosopher Nietzsche would say, even though he was a superman, he was the first superman, even though he was a genius who could name the animals, classify them, create a taxonomy, organize the world, align heaven and earth, the devil left him alone, even though he was sinless, walking with God. It wasn't until God gave him Eve that the serpent showed up. In the very next chapter, why? Because the devil isn't afraid of you if you don't reproduce after your own kind. If you're not winning souls and making disciples, the devil will leave you alone. That's why Satan attacks churches that are missional. Not an accident. Right after Genesis 2 and they became one flesh, the devil showed up. He didn't show up before that. So he didn't care about Adam because Adam was still alone. This is also why marriage is ground zero when it comes to spiritual warfare in the church. And this is why Satan is trying to alter marriage. Satan is neither homosexual, heterosexual. He's not, neither male nor female. The reason why he alters family and creates all these categories and gender is because he doesn't want a husband and wife to transmit the image of God to the next generation. Because it takes the image of God to bring God's dominion. Because before there was civilization, there was one man, one woman. Marriage is the foundation of all civilization. If he can mess with that, he keeps dominion over the systems of the world. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to finish this, but I got three points. So I got three more points. I'm going to wrap it up, and I may skip something here and there, but I'll just go quickly to the next point, the enemy has to be resisted in the garden. So even though they were in paradise, there still was other voices. Even though you're saved, you have to resist the voice of the enemy. Uh, number six, there's a lot there, which I'm skipping. Number six, rebellion against God and his divine laws release chaos. And so we have to walk with God. 
because in the same way it took the glory of God to subdue the chaos, it takes the glory of God, not just planning and discipline, to keep the chaos in our own life and our family in check. When we backslide, we release chaos. And what happened? When Adam sinned, he no longer had the fullness of the image of God. His son wound up murdering his other son, and it progressively got worse. So what happened was the chaos monster of Genesis 1-2 was released and got greater and greater and greater. The fluidity and unpredictability and the chaos got greater until what? There was a flood that covered the earth. As the Western civilizations have forsaken the Judeo-Christian worldview, we've released a flood. That's why there's no more boundaries in marriage, in gender. The gods have returned. The chaos monster, the dragon. And that's why there's, there's not even any geographic boundaries. And you don't have a nation if there's no functional boundaries. All of this is connected to losing the image of God, and as a nation forsaking the Judeo-Christian worldview. Last but not least, so much more I could say, the church is called to reflect the glory and truth of God on the earth. The first creative act, after it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the abyss. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, and then God said, let there be light. So that was really the first creative act after the initial framing of the world. And so this light was not natural light, and this is where apologists get messed up and people try to debunk Christianity. How do you have light and the sun, moon, and the stars weren't created until the fourth day? Well, because it wasn't natural light. That was the translucent emanation of the glory spirit. God said, let there be light. It was the glory of God that went forth to subdue the chaos. And so it also said that, and God separated the light from the darkness, which metaphorically meant that the translucent glory of God which is also the truth of God. Light stands for truth and illumination and revelation. It is the truth of God that enables us to discern between light and darkness or good and evil. And so Jesus called the church, what? The light of the world in the city on a hill. Paul the apostle actually said, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, for God said, let there be light, or let light shine out of darkness. He was pointed Genesis 1, 2. Has what? Shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he's pointing back to the Genesis 1 mandate to reflect the glory of God as image bearers of Christ. So you're called to reflect the glory of God, which also has to do with the truth of God, knowing the word of God, bringing the way, the truth, and the life into your realm. And finally, Ephesians 3, verse 8 to 10, I'm skipping a lot. Paul, he's talking to the Ephesian church. He said, even though I'm the least of all the saints, 
This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to what? Not an accident. Every word means some. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Going back to the creation. Bringing light has to do with reflecting the glory of God found in Genesis 1-2. That subdues the abyss, the chaos dragon, and brings Light so that creation and organization can begin because it kept chaos in check. And so here it says, so in verse 10, this is so powerful, so that through the church, somebody say through the church, so he preached so that the light of God, which took place during the beginning of creation, he preached so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made now known to the rulers and principalities in heavenly places. The Greek word for wisdom is the word Sophia, which has to do with the wisdom God utilizes to order and govern and subdue the earth. So when it says that God has called the church to manifest his light in every realm of society, he is talking about the wisdom of God that comes through the church because we are now the corporate Adam, the corporate son. And when we don't preach the truth, when we don't pray, when we don't uh, get involved in every aspect of culture, the wisdom of God is not going forth. And the wisdom of God is what keeps the chaos monster here. It's called the principalities and powers it says that the wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. When we abandon culture, when we stop preaching the word, when we stop putting people in every aspect of society, then the principalities and powers run amok because the wisdom of God, the light of God is not pushing back on them and it releases the flood again on the earth. How many are following this? So I'm just trying to help you. I'm not expecting you all to get everything I shared, but what I want you to get is to start thinking of every book of the Bible talking to each other, seeing the connection points, seeing the metaphors, the mystery, and it will release an aesthetic revival in the body of Christ if we catch this. Young people will love this. Young people love metaphor. They love parables. They love symbols. It's not just propositional, literary, rational truth like a lot of the Reformed evangelicals have collapsed it down to without the move of the spirit, without mystery, without power, without spirit. You can't survive in this world with just your mind without an experiential understanding of, of Jesus, of the Spirit of the Father, which alone can keep those demons in check in your life, in your family. And when you fall away, you release the chaos. That's why so many people see everything fall apart, not just they walk with God. It's not just about heaven and hell. They start losing their job, their mind, their kids, their marriage, everything. Why? Because you're releasing the flood. And so now as I end this, not an accident, the gods are coming back to claim the United States and the nations. That's why in Davos, 
Davos about three weeks ago in the World Economic Summit. They opened up with a witch casting a spell on the world's leaders. They invited a witch. Instead of a minister to pray, they invited a witch. Shows you what is happening. That's why there's a flood. So my question to you as I end this, are you willing to participate with Jesus in the renewal of all things with your labor and skill? Are you working with your church as the corporate son? The church is the visible manifestation of the invisible Christ. Are you working with your church to restore the waste places of your community and city? To bring it back to a garden? And are you faithfully conducting yourself to others as an image bearer of Christ? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resting place. If you want to participate with Jesus in the renewal of all things, why don't you stand up, put your hands up. Let's just commit ourselves to God. Oh, Lord, we pray for an, a Christian renaissance, a Christian renaissance in the sciences, in music, art, entertainment, in education, in literary works, in film, in every aspect of culture. Let it be a Christian renaissance. Oh, God, we pray that there would be a re-Christianization in Tampa, yes. in our homes, in our communities. Father, that we would plant the seeds of the kingdom so that it would spread. It would sprout and spread. It would permeate every aspect of culture. Father, I commit the resting place to you. Thank you for the artistic beauty here, the vision of aesthetics. And even as Jesus prayed and opened up their minds that they may understand the scriptures, I pray that you would give them a deeper understanding of the scriptures. Open their minds to understand it. Let their understanding of metaphor and symbols be rooted and grounded in church doctrine so that they're not going crazy with weird interpretations in historic systematic theology. Let them be rooted and grounded in the first principles so that they could understand all these other things. And Father, I thank you for the anointing on Caleb and others. Help them to be faithful expositors of the word of God to release the glory of God so that the chaos can be subdued and the glory of the spirit will manifest with the Logos, with the word, to bring everybody into the fullness of the stature of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the perfect measure of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, let's say thank you to Bishop Joseph. It's like, my goodness. So good. We're going to have our prayer team come forward and, man, I don't know. I just feel like even saying like, We'll work it out. If you want to stay for the second gathering, he's going to preach again. And, and if you need to hear it again, uh, just we'll, we'll figure it out. Don't worry. But um, yeah, I just want to say as a point of invitation, we have our prayer team down front. 
And if you're here and you heard that message just now, and you heard when he said that Adam gave authority to the serpent and the animal kingdom was now in charge of the kingdom of man, and something in your heart went, that's me. If something in your heart went, that's me, I, I'm, I'm a slave to animal instincts. I'm a slave to those things. Then the invitation today is you can be born again. You can be born from above. You can be born again in Christ because he made a way for you to not only know about him, but to know him by experience and to know him through the saving grace of the Holy Spirit. So what it takes is an admission that you need a savior. It takes an admission that you cannot save yourself. You cannot even fix yourself. How many tried that and failed? I, I, my hand's up. You cannot fix yourself. If you want to be free from that chaos, free from that, there is salvation for you today. And not only today, but unto eternity, you can walk in the fullness of Christ. That's the invitation today. That's what this team is here for. They're also here if you need healing in your body or you just want to come into agreement for anything as family. We open up the altar now for you to be prayed over. Silas is going to play, and you can come and receive ministry in that way. But I invite you today, if you never made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, that chaos thing is ruling your life. That's the truth. And you can be free of it. You can be free of it forever, now and forevermore. That's what he did for me. That's what he can do for you. So do not leave this building and give your life again to that chaos. Give it to the Lord of all. So Jesus, we pray today that any lost here would be found in you. That those of us who have been found, Lord, that we would walk in greater freedom so that we can rise up as peacemakers, not just in our lives, Lord, but reaching into our city. That you're sending us out. You're apostelloing us. You're sending us, Lord, into our region this week. So, Father, we say yes to your call. Come on. We say yes to being sent into our workplace tomorrow. Come on. I know we pray like this a lot. I feel like there's a grace right now. There's like an apostolic grace to do something different. Lord, we say yes to being sent into our workplace tomorrow. We say yes to being sent into our family today. We say yes to being sent into our neighborhood, sent into that restaurant we're going into, sent into every space you're calling us to. And we say yes and amen, Lord. And we thank you, Father, that you're going to make peace reign in Tampa Bay through the people in this room, through your church, because you are Lord of all. You are Lord of all, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for it. We thank you for the grace that's in this moment. And we step into it with a whole heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Have a wonderful day. Come get prayer right now. Get your Giants and World Changers from TRP Kids, no matter what you do. But have a wonderful day. We'll see you at Thursday prayer this Thursday or next Sunday. Bless you, bless you, bless you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from The Resting Place Tampa. We hope you feel honored empowered and full of faith because of what you hear and we would love to see you at a gathering soon for more resources like this head to trpfamily.org